Turn, if you would, in your Bibles. We are actually going to go to a passage that I spoke on when we taught about general revelation. But uh, we were going through this theological series. We'll actually go back to Mark um, in a few weeks. But uh, just wanted to cover some themes that I believe were important theologically. And as we have been talking about the humanity of Christ a little bit, about the deity of Christ as well. But we're going to look at today in the book of Romans and uh, Romans 1. So turn, if you would, to Romans 1. Romans 1, and I'll be reading verses 18 through 25, and then I'm going to be reading uh, verse, chapter 2, verse 14 through 15. I'll be reading out of both the New King James and the Holman Christian. In Romans 1, 18 through 25, and it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Then in 14.5 says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law these also, not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. And then back to verse 18 through 25 says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the cravings of their heart to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served something created instead of the Creator who is praised forever. Amen. So when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts will either accuse or excuse them. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that it gives to us. And as we 
discuss this morning, I pray that you would help us to know your word better, to know you better. And our desire is to know your word so that we can understand more about who you are and your plan. And Father, help us to be submitting our will and desires to you. May you be magnified and lifted up. And just pray that you might allow me to articulate clearly more about who you are. And may we take that knowledge and not allow it to puff us up, but to motivate us to live more, to honor and serve you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. The message is entitled this morning, I can't see you so you can't see me. I can't, I can't see you so you can't see me. If you've ever played hide and go seek with a small child, or maybe you've been that small child, and what they often will do is maybe kind of go to hide. And so what they'll do is they'll cover their eyes and they'll be right in front of you and they think that they're hidden because they can't see you. So their belief is that you can't see them either. But as we look at this morning, my approach is that for you to understand a misunderstanding of God should not lead to a misperception of God. And as we go through this, hopefully it'll be a little more explanatory of what I mean. So first thing, as we discuss getting you to think about what caused you to first believe in God. The Bible never seeks to prove the existence of God. There are many proofs as we think about, Thomas Aquinas, and even Aristotle, others who have tried to logically give arguments for the existence of God, and we believe that there is evidence of God. Even the scripture in this passage talks about it. But it doesn't necessarily seek to prove it as we, human mankind, would like proof or theorems. But it does already assume that God exists. And so as we look at this passage, one of the first things I want you to understand is that God is knowable. God is knowable. And what that expresses is his eminence. And that's kind of not with an E, but with an I, which means eminent. And we're going to look at the fact that God is both transcendent and eminent. The fact that there are those who say God is unknowable or God is distant, God is beyond his creation, but also God is eminent in that he is here, he is present. We can actually know who God is. In verse 19 and 20, and Riley, go ahead and advance those slides. If we look at verse 19 and 20, it states in Romans 1, it says, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them or to us. It is knowable because it has been revealed to us. First of all, there's evidence that God exists. And we talked about a little bit um, prior in weeks past about the general revelation of God the design, the order, the fact that even we can have an understanding of God. There are different evidences. But what is revealed? As it talks about here, his, in, his invisible attributes. Attributes is simply a fancy word of the characteristics that exist, and part of these characteristics in, um, demonstrate that God is God. Without these characteristics, he would not be God, these attributes. One thing we know is that as an invisible attribute, God is a spirit. Even talks about John 4.24, God is a spirit. If we were to look at 1 Timothy 1.17, 1 Timothy 1.17 states, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible to God, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Pretty clear. No one has ever seen God. And so scripture talks about that. 
But first thing we look at is the fact that God is knowable, and what we know about God is that God is eternal. As we read there, it talked about the eternal power of God. God is eternal. Psalm 90. God has always existed. Uh, there's a fancy word, aseity, in the sense of who God is. And God is not limited by his creation because he is beyond his creation. The challenge that we have as man, humankind is that we try to explain God, but to understand that God is eternal. He exists apart from time, space, and matter. He created time, space, and matter in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But he exists beyond. And so that, but God is knowable. We can know that God is eternal. And that concept, we only understand time. Everything is limited by time. There's a time and, uh, for this. There's a time to eat. There's a time to go to bed. There's, and as we get older, sometimes it's earlier. But there is time to go to work. There's a time for each event that occurs in our life. But as we learn about God, we, we also know that God has chosen to work or act within the restraints of or the limits of his creation. And he is eternal. But also we understand that God is powerful. God is, it talks about all powerful, almighty. He can do all things. And here, they are potential and active. There are things that he can do, but he doesn't do, choose to do, and the things he actively does. And we see here, he is active. Things that he has done. He is provided for salvation. Powerful. The fact of forgiving sins. Supernatural acts. As we think about the Old Testament, these supernatural acts of God that has demonstrated to mankind that go against the laws of nature. And uh, we understand those acts. He is consistent, but he's also consistent with his nature and does not actual, actualize logical contradictions. Now, I know that's a lot of philosophical terms, but let me just rephrase that or explain it again. He is consistent with his nature and does not actualize logical contradictions with his creations. There's those philosophers who say, you know, can God create a rock too big that even he can't move it? Can God make... C-A-T spelled dog. Can God sin? That is not a limit on his power. What this does is it's a consistency with his character. And so the questions they ask are actually some are what they call absurd arguments. But as Thomas Aquinas has said, he will not create a round square or make a married bachelor. These logical contradictions in our, our, in our minds. And God can cannot sin, but this is not a limit to his power, but a consistency of his nature of who he is. And it's important for us to understand that even because we think logically, but it's not a limit upon his power or of who he is. Also, we learn about that he is all-powerful, but we learn about his Godhead or his divine nature. And what that signifies is that he is self-existent. As we look back in Romans 1, it talks about in verse 18, it says they suppress the truth of who God is. He's revealed himself. And verse 19 says that what can be known about God is evident to them. He's shown it to them. And then verse 20, his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world. The fact that there is even a God that exists beyond and as we look at it, it goes to the, back to 
what they call probable cause or what is the cause. And even Aristotle went back and said, what is the cause of all the causes that occur? There must be some great cause that caused the beginning cause and to put that into the vocabulary. But to understand what started it all. Who, where did everything come from? And looking at the questions here, and Paul reveals this, and it's important for us to understand as he, he's dealing with Rome. He's dealing with the Romans and what was going on. Because even within the Greek and Roman gods, there's part human, part mankind. And it's important for us to look at what was taking place, but also understanding that God is separate. God is not limited by creation. He is not exists within the parameters of the creation. God is something separate. He's self-existent. He's separate from his creation. He is infinite. We talked about even in singing, he is infinite, which means simply he is without limitations. Imagine if we were without limitations. Imagine if you could eat whatever you want. There's no limitations and it won't affect your health. It won't affect um, your weight. It won't affect anything about you. We'd be like, hey, I'll do that. Imagine you're infinite. You could do whatever you wanted to, you know. But we're corrupt. Mankind, we would get in trouble very quickly. You know, my kids would be playing video games or on their phones 24 hours, 7. They wouldn't go to school. There would be no limitations. You know, like, hey, this is great. But we have to set those parameters, even as humans, you know, as individuals. We set certain time restraints because we know, oh, we're going to pay the consequences for that. But with God, there is no limit. And that's important because that also demonstrates that we can know God and know about God. But also the second thing we learn is that there is a limit to our understanding of God. There's a limit to our understanding of God. And as we talked about before, the natural revelation. First of all, in creation, God is visible. As it talks about in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. And as we understand that the creation demonstrates that there is a God, there's design, there's order. Where did this come from? This just did not naturally occur. There's something behind that. It is visible. Even as it talks about in 2, 14 and 15, about the law that is put on. Here, Paul is talking about those who do not know Christ. And he says in verse 14 and 15, Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively do what the law demands. And as it refers to there, the Mosaic law, but also the law of the conscience, understanding what is right, what is wrong, written on their hearts, their conscience, conscience confirms them. They, are, they will either accuse or excuse them. And as we look at what is taking place here with natural revelation, there is a limit to the understanding of God because there's a point within the limits of creation and as, we, as people see, they can recognize that there is a God, but that's it. What does it do? It, it will excuse them or, or accuse them. They understand that they have guilt. Okay, there is God and I'm guilty, but what's next? There's a limit to what they can know. And because of that, there's personal sin and guilt and an unbeliever cannot have a personal relationship with God. But they understand that they're guilt and that they are sinful. But what is the next step? And so God has, through special or direct revelation, sent Jesus Christ. And there has been acts where he has done that. As you look at verse uh, 25 to 26, it goes down 
and says, Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to their vile passions. Mankind, sinful, and left to our own devices. Men and women, boys and girls, we're just going to act sinful and more sinful. And we're thankful that there's even a restraint of that sinfulness on this earth. But because of that sinfulness, and God knew that, he sent his son Jesus Christ to come to die on the cross to forgive our sins as an act of special revelation. And we understand that mankind would reject and turn from him and provided within his divine plan. And we often call this the permissive will of God, the entrance of sin and evil for both the human perspective of guilt and sin. And it's important for us to understand that there are the opposites. What is the purpose of sin? And my message this morning is not to bring about what is the cause of evil or, or what is its purpose, but just to, first of all, in a short, brief statement, say, understanding, is there any benefit to evil or to sin? To look at that. And from the human perspective, we, it's important for us to see that we are guilty, and there is sin, and there is a punishment for sin. But the opposite of that is that there's also forgiveness, reconciliation, and reward. And he orchestrated a specific plan to mankind to return and obtain fellowship with God. And so he sent Jesus Christ, which is the greatest demonstration of God, to provide forgiveness for our sin, to provide salvation to all mankind. And it shows us a personal God. But also he sent, gave us the word of God, where it talks about the law and even the conscience. And he, he gave it to explain more about who God is. So it's important because as we learn about God and his plan, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. We talked about even in Sunday school. As we read the word of God, for anyone who does not know Christ as their personal Savior, to read the word of God, it just becomes words. But we know that it's living. And the Holy Spirit helps us to understand. And as you grow in your relationship with Christ, these just may seem, you know, archaic or, or difficult words to understand. But the more as we read about God and with the help of the Holy Spirit, that we can learn about it. And even as we learn more about God, there's a limit to our understanding of God, of who he is. And sometimes it, it demonstrates in reading our sinfulness or the nature of God. But wow. There's a limit to, I can't even comprehend because of who we are. And the Bible kind of demonstrates that gulf because as we learn and study more about God, it demonstrates some of his communicable attributes. And simply those attributes that God shares with mankind. So we understand that there's a divine God, but he also demonstrates and shares certain characteristics with us. God is loving, just, gracious, merciful, holy if we think about love churches promote that god is love the bible talks about god is love he sent his son those acts but we can understand them from a human perspective we understand justice we understand justice when we want justice when we've been wronged when someone breaks into our house when they steal something when they do something to us they cut us off in the parking lot or or they derive, you know, you want justice. That's why they created the, in the 80s and 90s those, that little keychain that you could zap them eh, or laser and all these make noises. 
whatever you could, some kind of vengeance. We want justice. You know, we want to drive by the I-10. You know, they, they flew by us and almost caused us to have an accident, and we want them to be on the side of the road either pulled over or with a flat tire. That would be justice, right? But divine justice, it would be justice for sin. It would Immediate justice would truly be dangerous for ourselves as well. But then there's grace, God giving us what we don't deserve, which is death and eternal punishments. Mercy, God giving us less than we deserve. Holiness, that's separate from sin. Truth, God is truth to know what is right. And righteousness, divine righteousness. Faith, God is faithful. He is always there. If you think about it, those who we trust, we learn to trust certain people, but even they will let us down. But God is always faithful and just. His characteristics, he shares some of those with us. But also there's characteristics that only God has. And some of those we call the incommunicable. He does not communicate or transfer to us. And those, the fact that God is immense. He is great, infinite. He is unlimited. Go ahead and advance that slide. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. God is a spirit. But yet, how is God everywhere? And yet, in the person of Jesus Christ, he is one place. What does that mean? But yet, God is not everything. God is not this, this uh, new carpet. God is not that tree. He's separate from that. But there are those who believe in that. Pantheism. And God is not in everything. Or panentheism in the sense that God is in this or that. So there's some characteristics that it's, you know, how do we distinguish? But God is omnipotent. He can do all things. He is all-knowing. He's eternal, immutable. And we can go through Scripture and even demonstrate some of these. And he demonstrates that, that he knows everything. But as we look at the communicable characteristics, one of the benefits of them is that we can possess these characteristics to a limited extent, and the practice of them exemplify true Christ-likeness. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. As we exhibit some of those characteristics, especially when we don't want to. It's not very fun to be loving to a brother or sister when we don't want to. Maybe they've wronged us. You know, we just want to hit them. But to exhibit the mind of Christ, the Spirit of Christ, in, in demonstrating grace and mercy when they aren't deserved. But then also what we learn about God, characteristics. God is eternal. God is immutable. The fact that he does not change. Malachi 3.6 says, I do not change. You know, that's good. That would be great. You know, we could just, you know, in your own house, you could set everything up and not have to change it, right? It would be, you know, sometimes someone who, oh, you know, let's rearrange the furniture. Let's change this. It's a process. So there's some who don't like change. Some who move along at a slower pace. Some, hey, change is great. Technology, you know, let's do this or that. And it's like, wait a second, what happened? I can't keep up. It doesn't refer to God in that sense, in the sense that I do not change. You know, God doesn't change, so I shouldn't change either. Not what it's speaking about. But understanding in, in that. And so as we study and learn about that. But the third thing we look at is that not only is God knowable and that we can there's a limit to our understanding of god but also our sin and humanity prevent true fellowship and understanding of god and as we take this passage verse 21 through 25 we
we understand that we are sinful. Who God is exposes who we are. That's the hard part. If you've ever, you know, in school, the brightest kid in school who gets perfect A's, it's like, oh, you know what? Maybe you're that kid. And it's like, oh, you know what? It exposes, they mess up the curve. What's going on? You know, hey, great. Now we have to get that. And so what's, what's the issue? You know, maybe your grades aren't that way. Or then there's, you know, that individual who is the perfect child or the perfect coworker. And those that say, oh, you can't compete. There's always a standard. And it's hard to keep up with that. But understanding is, as, as a standard of perfection of God, who he is, it truly presents our sinfulness before him, that we are guilty. And as we understand more about God and understand about the world we live in, we see sinfulness all around. We do wrong. But first thing we see is the fact that God is incomprehensible. And what that refers to, that we cannot know everything about God. And that's hard because there's certain things we want to know. If you have a curious mind, you want to know how things work. Or maybe it's a dish, how to make that specifically. We want to replicate things. We want to know how things are. Some of it, we just want the knowledge so that we can share with others. I remember when the iPhone came out, and you know, that was the coolest thing, and just how it worked, and it was like a new gadget. Or maybe there's a new vehicle. Um, someone showed me one of the Teslas, self-parking, you know, and how it's all automated and the gullwing doors, things that it does all by itself. You know, like, wow, that's pretty impressive. We want to know things. We, sometimes we want to know how things work. But we can't know everything about God because God is metaphysical and beyond our complete understanding. And here where God is knowing that his eminence, he's also transcendent. And what that means is that he transcends physical matter and the laws of nature. If we say, okay, I want you to go out and fly. You know, we've seen people, oh, look, that man is flying because he's got that uh, bat wing suit. No, he's just coasting or, or as, a, a, what is it, um, Woody and Buzz. Buzz says he's falling with, uh, I forget what it is, falling with grace or he's just, he is not really flying because he's a toy and he cannot fly. But... Understanding is that the laws of nature restrict who we are and how we act. If you go out and fly, there's something uh, you know, that is contrary to the laws of nature with you. You won't go out and fly. Someone can throw you, but falling with grace, or I forget what it is. But understanding is that we, we live and exist within the laws and properties of nature. But God is not restricted to those. Second thing we see, because comprehensible, God is three in one. Think about that, three in one. So let me explain, first of all, let's go back to the definition of God. And so on the next slide, you see a definition of God. First of all, God is an independent, ever-living, and personal spirit being who is distinguished by all other because of his attributes, trinity, and acts. Try to give a definition of God. And there's certain characteristics in there that help us understand who God is. But within God, what is the Trinity? The Trinity, the word is never used in the Bible. But it is a, a fact that is taught throughout Scripture. It's mentioned throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Personal names of God using that. And then we see plural, plural, plurality used. 
as we see even in Genesis. So it is taught throughout Scripture, and it doesn't. And so as we look at the Trinity, definition of the Trinity, there's only one true God, but within the unity of the Godhead, there are three co-eternal and co-equal persons, the same in essence, but distinct in necessary existence. Now that's a definition. Think, how does that apply? What's the practicality of that? What does that mean? Let me give you a list of a few uh, ramifications of that. But before I do, here's a picture. And it's a little small, but it's just simply a representation. Uh, we have the Trinity represented as a triangle. There is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father is not God the Son. God the Son is not God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is not God the Father, but yet they're all God. It's a very different concept of what we understand. But let's, let me try to explain a little bit of it uh, regarding the Trinity. First of all, God is one, not three gods. It's important because there's a distinction. Father, Son, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are separate and divine persons. We don't believe in modalism. It's that sometimes God is, is in this mode. He reveals himself in this mode. Or the fact that um, there are three aspects. The Bible lists three persons of the Trinity throughout in various orders throughout Scripture. It's not like he always says God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Sometimes there's different order, sometimes different names. But there, the mentions three of them as God. And that's important to us to understand. Thirdly, co-eternal and co-equal in that definition means that all three have existed as God. When Jesus came to earth, he didn't become God. There are those who believe that Jesus became a God. Jesus has always been God. The Holy Spirit has always been God. God the Father has always been God. Next thing we see is the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are distinct in function in that there are different actions that they perform. Also, we see that the Trinity is incomprehensible because there is no comparison within our existence or experience. So while there's lots of illustrations that you may have heard, they all fall short and distort the unity, diversity, balance, and or personal nature of the Trinity. So that's why I don't really like to use too many um, illustrations in that, in defining Trinity. I usually just give that picture and present it as such because there is a distortion. I don't want you to be distorted. Simply, this is what is stated. But finally, just because it is incomprehensible does not negate its truthfulness or just because we don't understand it does not make it false. Just because I can't see you does not mean that you cannot see me. So as we look at the truths of Scripture, there are things that are difficult and that we don't completely understand in its full comprehension. But let me give you this example. One illustration, a little separate. And if you like puzzles, you might like this. There's a man um, who died and, and lived in the Middle East and leaves in his will three... Um, to his three sons, camels. The first son gets one half of his camels. The second son gets a third of his camels, and the third son gets one ninth of his camels. The dilemma or the problem he had was that the father had 17 camels. So the father passed away, and so they tried to divide, but 
as much as they try to figure out to divide the 17 camels into halves, thirds, and ninths without chopping up some of the camels in the process, they couldn't do it. And those of you who, like, who dislike fractions, I'm sorry, but it's you know half, third, and ninths. And so they're trying to divide these camels, but they can't figure it out. Well, finally, they call a wise man to discern and solve their problem. So the wise man comes, and after some thought, he thinks about it and then goes home. He goes home and brings his own camel. He added their camel to their 17 to equal 18. Then he distributed the camels. To the first son, he gave half, which was nine. To the second son, who received a third, he gave six. And to the third son, who received one-ninth of the camels, he gave two. After dividing up the camels, the sage individual got on his own camel and returned home. So oftentimes we look at problems, and we may not even know or understand the solution, but there is a solution. And as we look at the doctrines of God, while we cannot understand or comprehend completely, we can have faith and trust that God is God, that he's revealed as much as we need to know everything for faith and godliness, how to live, that is important to us. And there are truths that while we may not completely understand, it's okay. And it's only by God's grace that we can even know God and experience personal salvation from sin and eternal punishment. It is amazing to think that God has allowed us to know and worship him. Shall we pray?